Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. I really got a kick out of revisiting the episode title you gave, the one we did together in Cincinnati, called Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and Ann Vogel. Three names that will never appear together ever again. <laughs> <laughs> hey, readers, I'm Ann Vogel, and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 254. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on the show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, the holidays are fast approaching and around here, we're of the opinion books make the perfect gift, whether you're shopping for friends, family, coworkers, teachers, whomever. But choosing the right title can be tough, so it's become a tradition on What Should I Read Next to have a special guest join me on the show to help us match your loved ones with the perfect readerly gifts. If you want our help building your bookish shopping list, there are two ways to participate. One, leave me a voicemail from your phone or computer at speakpipe.com slash what should I read next. That's speakpipe, one word, dot com slash what should I read next. Just share who you'd like a gift recommendation for, a couple of books they love, a book or genre you know they don't like, and any little details you think are useful. Please make sure to keep your message under one minute. You can also email our producer Brenna at brenna at modernmrsdarcy.com with the same details, who your giftee is, their favorites, their least favorites, and whatever else you think would be helpful. We'll squeeze as many submissions as we can into the upcoming holiday episode and hook you up with the perfect bookish gifts. Again, that's speakpipe.com slash what should I read next or email Brenna at B-R-E-N-N-A at modernmrsdarcy.com. Today, I'm talking with two friends and also fellow Kentuckians, Sarah Stewart Holland and Beth Silvers. You might recognize their voices from the podcast Pantsuit Politics, where they come together each week to practice curiosity and graceful conversations about politics, the news, and other things that help us live in community together. All three of us enjoy reading to learn and to understand different perspectives and new worlds, but our reading tastes vary widely. Today, we're coming together to discuss fiction and nonfiction recommendations that have shaped our understanding of politics, history, and what it means to be a human in this world. We're each sharing books we personally love and often recommend because they're fascinating, thought-provoking, and sometimes surprisingly page-turning. Sarah and Beth added several titles to my own to-be-read list, as they often do, including a 30-hour book that will certainly help me get the most out of my next audiobook credit. We've got some excellent recommendations for you today, readers. Let's get to it. Beth and Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having us. Well, it's a pleasure to talk books with you today. Sarah, this is actually a repeat appearance for you. And I did a little walk down memory lane this morning. When do you think that was in time? Um, I looked it up to make sure I didn't pick the same book twice. It was like several, several years ago. Wasn't it like 2017, 15? It was wild. Yeah, it was 2016. Wow. I, it, so that was episode 43. And I had FOMO and we talked about it. And I felt like you gave me excellent advice of which I have marginally applied successfully. <laughs> <laughs> I like how you talk to Sarah in election years. I think that's the pattern. Yeah, right. Okay, we are going to talk about the election today a, li a little <laughs> bit, but that is not what we talked about in 2016. I don't think. No, it was about the fact that I get FOMO and like I, I feel pressure to read sort of the award winners. And so I'm just following a pattern of recommendation that has no structure to it. I have gained more structure to the books I read and like purposely reading not just the latest, trendiest fiction. 
Oh, that's interesting. You know, I was looking back at the books we discussed, and I got to say, four years later, I would not have recommended one of the books I recommended to you in that episode. <gasps> really? What? Which one? Which one? Oh, do I want to say it out loud? I don't know. Maybe readers just yes. go, like, Hillbilly Elegy. I would not recommend that today. Oh, right. Right. There's better. I think the easiest thing to say is just if that's what you're looking for, there are better options now. It's a different literary landscape now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I remember we talked about curing Hamilton hangover, but mm-hmm. also I refer back to your episode all the time because you talked about how you love to learn. And when it comes to choosing your books and seeing what appeals to you, you're just a very thirsty sponge who likes to absorb all the information. And that's not how everyone reads, but it's how many readers do approach their reading lives. And it's great to be able to refer them to that episode so they can feel like they're with a kindred spirit. Love it. Okay, so Beth, this is your first appearance on the podcast. Thank you for joining us. I'm so happy to be here. Two of my favorite people in one place. Oh, that's so nice. And three Kentucky girls, which has never happened on What Should I Read Next and will probably never happen again. Yeah. Many listeners know your voices from your own podcasts and then the daily news briefs you do on Instagram. So if you're listening and you're thinking, I know these voices, I am sure that's why. Something else I'd forgotten about that the Google helps remind me of is that I have been on your show annually since 2017. I did not remember that it had been that long, but I really got a kick out of revisiting the, um, the episode title you gave the one we did together in Cincinnati called Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and Ann Vogel. Three names that will never appear together ever again. <laughs> <laughs> That's really fun. I love it. You probably came up with it. So I'm glad it's, it so it's striking you in a good way all this time. <laughs> That's perfect. We try to be very direct with our episode titles. We're, we are not imaginative about it. Just this is what you're coming for, ladies and gentlemen. I know those people who like <laughs> pun every title. We find that to be one of the hard hardest parts of podcasting. And we as our internal team who our show comes out on Tuesday, every Friday afternoon, we're like, OK, guys, what are we going to call it? Because direct is good. We, we never want to be misleading, but also we don't want to sound terribly boring either. We just lean hard into the terribly boring. We figure if you're rolling in for a news and politics discussion, you want to understand what that discussion is going to be about. So it's just kind of the bullet points and it removes that pressure to be creative on our end. Our favorite thing to do, and I think the thing we do most often is take a direct quote out of our guest's mouth or sometimes mine. But then sometimes the quote we want to use is 30 words long and that doesn't fit in your little iTunes preview. Yeah. Well, now I feel all this pressure Mm. to be pithy. (laughs) Quotable. So for those who don't know, tell us a little bit about the show, because we're going to connect this to your reading lives in just a moment. Pantsy Politics is our attempt to create what we could not find for ourselves around news and politics. Sarah and I both from different lenses come to politics with a lot of interest. I have always been kind of addicted to news and Sarah is more of a lifelong political analyst and observer and participant. And probably those differences reflect in our reading lives as well. But we came together to have discussions where we're not trying to parrot party talking points. We're not trying to debate. We're just trying to be curious people who learn more about themselves and the world through discussing the things that are very important to how we live together in community. And so that's what we try to model two times a week, every week. And I think that Probably our why has shifted a little bit from the beginning, but not much, because I do think we came into this thinking, how can I learn more about people of other views? The opportunity to hear from people of all kinds of views now as our audience has grown and we've gotten to know our audience well almost five years later. I spend a lot of my reading time just with those listener messages, really helping to understand how the things we talk about on the show are playing out in people's lives. And it's just incredibly enriching work, even when the idea of anything political feels fraught and overwhelming for us. It it remains grace filled and a really beautiful part of our lives. Well, I love how you said that you spend a lot of your reading time reading messages from listeners, because sometimes I talk to readers who say like, oh, my gosh, I feel so guilty or so unintelligent. I haven't read anything in so long. And I'm thinking, oh, I bet you did. I mean, it's just not mm-hmm. book length forms, because Beth, I'm sure you read a ton like case law articles, many, many emails. But I don't know about your book reading 
life. We, we don't talk about books. Tell me a little bit about that. My book reading life is often to enhance the preparation I'm doing for the show. I love research. And so I have really folded in my book reading life to the research that I do for the show. And you'll hear that in some of the books I want to talk with you about. And um, currently, you know, I'm reading a book about how to reform the healthcare system that I hope we can talk about on the show at some point. So I read mostly nonfiction. And I really try to lean into books that are saying, here's an existing problem and we're talking it to death on terms that do not matter. And I want to talk to you on terms that do matter and kind of reinvent the questions presented about this problem so that we can imagine some new solutions to those questions. So really forward thinking nonfiction from people with niche expertise about topics that come up all the time in political conversation would be how I describe my reading life. I would say I love to learn about problem solving. So I don't love historical books as much as Sarah does. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm interested in history but I am much more interested in that future-oriented approach. Where is this issue going and how can we tackle it as it goes there? How do you find the books you choose to read? Well, I'm very fortunate that people send us lots of books, Mm -hmm. so I don't have to look very hard. But I also read a ton of long-form articles And that's where I end up seeing like a a thinker who's cited frequently. And I feel like I want to know more about what this person has to say. And and I follow those threads to recommendations. I read a quip a decade ago that has turned out to be like oddly prescient and true for my own reading life. And that is once you've written one of those long form pieces in the Atlantic, you've written 40 or 50 pages of your book. I mean, some of those are 10, 12, 13,000 words long. So you might as well go on and finish it and like put it between covers. And it's very true that many of the books that I enjoy reading in the nonfiction space did begin as long form articles in news magazines. Well, and that's why I don't think we should shame ourselves if we are reading more long form articles than books, because we're reading the beginning of someone's book or a summary of someone's book very often and able to take in some really good information and thinking that way. Sarah, we do talk books sometimes, but I'm pretty sure the last book we discussed was Beach Read by Emily Henry. Yeah. Not nonfiction, not about learning, not about Mm. politics. Yeah. You know, my fiction flows a lot from your recommendation. I usually take your summer reading guide and just go through, figure out which ones I like and just fill up my hold list and read them as they come in. Um, I would say that approximately 75% of the fiction I read comes from your recommendations. Oh, I'm not sure whether to feel flattered or terrified. You should feel flattered. (laughs) Because also you should, you don't need to worry because you know, if I don't like one, I'll tell you. I'll be like, I like that one, Anne. That one was not, I'm not a fan of that one. I mean, that's okay, though. I think people sometimes are hesitant to say, that book didn't work for me, and I want to hear about it, and I want to hear why. That's the beginning of a really interesting conversation. So, okay, so we talked about how you love to learn, but you're looking for something else in much of the fiction you pick up, and maybe the nonfiction as well. Tell me about that. Well, I think for me, fiction in particular is a chance to get out of my own head, because you know what? It's a little intense in there. And so I really need a break. I need to feel like I can go somewhere else for a little while. Listen, especially because we work in politics and right now is an intense time. And so, oh, my God, that's why Beach Read felt like a gift from the heavens because I was like, oh, yeah, I want to be. Well, I want to be on that bookshelf, but that's probably too racy for um, your podcast. But. Oh, Lord, that scene. Um, And so I just I don't read. A lot of light fiction, I should say. Like, it doesn't need to be that I'm going somewhere light and breezy with no real conflict or issues. I really like intense fiction. Mm -hmm. I really like literary fiction. I do not need a happy ending. I do not need a romance. I mean, I think probably the most important thing for me in fiction, which is what keeps me out of my own head and engaged in the book, is like, I really like if I don't see where it's going. I think that's probably my biggest sort of turnoff as a book. If I can see the wheels turning and see where they're taking us, I really don't dig that experience. Mm -hmm. I want to go different places. I want to live in different countries. I want to see what it's like to be other people. So that's why I love fiction. And I really it's really important to like straight up my mental health. Um, Mm -hmm. Nonfiction. I do love history. I think I want to understand in depth how we got here, what it was like previously. I mean, I think in, in a way I'm doing what... Uh, I do with fiction, only in a in a different way with nonfiction, especially history. Like I want to go I want to be immersed in this problem, but like not as me. You know what I'm saying? Like if we're in the middle of a racial reckoning, I want to understand that humans and Americans have been struggling with this. And I want to feel 
as much as I can and understand what it was like when they were reckoning with this in 1770 or 1870 or 1920. Like, I think that Mm -hmm. to me is very helpful and and it, it gives me some orientation in the space. So I read a lot of history books. I read a lot of sort of sociological studies. I'm really interested in culture and like sort of bigger trends and how we handle things. I think the last book we, yeah, this was probably before Beach Read. I mean, one of the last books we talked about was Can't Even... How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation by yeah. Anna Peterson. Because I, you read it and I was like, I've been, I mean, I'm like such a massive fan of Anne's. I've been reading her writing on the internet for over 10 years. And I was so excited about this book. And then I was like, oh, right, I can get an advanced copy like Anne's. <laughs> <laughs> and so I did. And I read it in like a day. I mean, I will get in nonfiction books and I will read them like they're mysteries. Like if they're really good, I don't put them down. And I'm like flying through them because I think I'm so consumed with the perspective and sort of the deep dive into the subject matter. So it's not sort of out of the ordinary for me to treat a nonfiction book like a fiction book where I'm like, oh, my gosh, not like what's going to happen, but I'm consumed by it. Reading nonfiction like mysteries. Okay, so I hadn't thought to put it like that when we're talking about a book like Can't Even, which is what's the subtitle? How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. Is that right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. so we're talking about sociology and cultural trends. We're not talking about, I mean, this isn't like a narrative nonfiction, like true crime or whodunit story by any means. But I do feel like it's like a mystery that really resonates because I'm reading it like, okay, I've experienced these things, but I have no idea why it's that way. And I feel like Mm -hmm. she's telling me. I like that description. How do you find those nonfiction books? How do you decide what to read next? I would say a lot of them are personal recommendations from readers. A lot of some of the stuff we get sent. A lot of is just subject matters I really want to understand more in depth or that I'm trying to piece together because we're going to do a series on it or um, because I just want to understand it in a deeper way. I want to be able to think through it more clearly. So it's driven by the show, driven by recommendations, driven by my own you know, sort of personal explorations. I'm reading Far From the Tree and probably will be reading Far From the Tree by Andrew Solomon for the next, like, I don't know, 18 months. Oh, by Andrew Solomon. Yeah. Oh, I don't know what that is. I thought you were talking about the Robin Benway novel, which I was about to tell you I love. Yes, I read that one, I think either on your recommendation or because I thought it was the Andrew Solomon one. I found the Andrew Solomon one from an Atlantic long read um, that was about a woman whose daughter had a chronic condition and she quotes him and she it's this amazing quote about how children with chronic um, or fatal conditions force us to confront this idea that our children are our chance at immortality and that we're really trying to replicate ourselves and like this instinctual psychological thing we do with our kids he tackles that through many different perspectives in the deaf community and the down syndrome community with people whose children are criminals with people who had children as a product of rape and this sort of horizontal identity when our children are very different from us and i have a child with a disability and i wanted to think through that more clearly and more um, in depth and sort of confront some of these things and so i picked it up but it is 800 pages every little section is basically a book I think is the best way. I mean, it's the size of a phone book, two phone books, depending on where you live. And so I'm going through it really slowly with a friend of mine. We're just kind of taking each section at one at a time. But, you know, it's so brilliantly written, but it's very intense because, you know, this is an intense subject matter in my personal life that I really wanted to take some time with. And so that's I chose a book to do that. Now, we are on the cusp of another presidential election. Can I just say, can this be the confessional? I used to love presidential election year so much. It was endlessly fascinating to me to watch this vast field of candidates slowly get winnowed down to the two final contenders. And the joy has been lost for that in the last few cycles. (laughs) But I also love to read to understand things, to learn more, to understand different perspectives and new worlds. And this is the time of year when many readers feel the same way and they're interested in reading books, maybe that don't address political beliefs or party ideology, but that do touch on or relate to politics in some way. And so today we get to share a handful of our favorite political books. And I got to know, like, was it hard for y'all to choose these? Beth, was it hard for you to narrow it down? Because I'm sure you've read boatloads. Yes, for sure. It was very hard to narrow it down. And I 
as I answered your question about kind of the book I like to read, I feel pretty happy with my choices. But I will also say I love that description of nonfiction as mystery that I'm going to be thinking about for a while. And it brought a number of other books to mind for me. So it, it, it is difficult. There's so much good writing beyond I'm running for office. Here's my biography. Mm-hmm. And I'm afraid that that's what hits most people's radar this time of year. So I'm excited to talk about other things. Don't read those. Those are so <laughs> terrible. I mean, Sarah, when you came to speak at my church, you defined politics in a way that I hadn't thought about quite before. I think you said like politics is how we figure out how to live together in community, which is the topic of so many books, not just biographies, memoirs and histories. Well, first of all, I stole that definition from Beth. It was good, Beth. It was good. It sounded good coming out of her mouth, too. You know, I'm looking around at so many things right now, including thoughts and ideas we're exploring, and it feels like there is a real breakthrough manifestation coming to the surface of what are we doing? What is community? How are we doing this? Like this really push beyond just the individualistic perspective that I love so much. And I think you're seeing it in a lot of books right now, for sure. Because politics should be connective. Mm-hmm. I think the reason the joy is lost that you were describing, and you are not alone in the the number of people who used to find the presidential race fascinating and have come to find it exhausting at best, is because it's so disconnective. We're participating in politics as though the point is to be adversarial. And so I love this writing that reminds us that actually it is a connective process and it's one that we all have to create together. There is something creative about voting and there's really good writing that helps you think through that exercise. I got to say, the books I chose to talk about, they're not all about bringing people together. (laughs) Sarah, was it hard for you to choose? Oh, gosh. Yes. I hate choosing. I hate choosing anything. When people are like, choose your favorite book, your favorite film, your favorite TV show. Like, I'm like, well, I'm going to have to need at least three to five. Thank you, please. (laughs) I just that's just my personality. I'm finding it impossible to choose and narrow down. Superlatives are tough. They're so hard. Well, and I have to say that on the show every week, we don't ever ask people for their three most favorite books or the best or the it just happened to be three favorites. You could have like 3000 favorites, but just tell us three of them, any three of them today. That's okay. very helpful framing. Yes, that's my coping strategy. Just embedded in the structure of the show. All right. So here's what we get to talk about today. We each are sharing not necessarily three books we love as we so often do on the show, although maybe you do. Please tell us. But three books that incorporate politics in an important way that have been personally meaningful to you. Beth, why don't you go first? What did you choose? So my first book to recommend is The New Rules of War by Sean McFate. And I am recommending this book because when you just look at the cover of it, it is not an inviting book. I am certain I'm not the target demographic for the book (laughs) the way it was designed and packaged. It has a very militaristic look to go along with the subject matter. It is fascinating. So Sarah and I have shared before on our show that we both did future problem solving in high school, where you get a future scenario and you go through and you identify all the problems you see and then pick the worst problem and start looking at solutions. And this book feels to me like being back in the future problem solving room because Sean McFate just demonstrates so skillfully how all the conversations we have about the military and our engagement with other countries are stuck in World War II. It's like the rest of the world has completely reframed global conflict, and we are still talking as though we're sort of in the trenches. It's just a really fascinating, fast-paced look at how we should be talking about our military and how we should be equipping our military and what would actually make sense for the United States as a, as a player on the world stage. And I just couldn't read it fast enough or stop thinking about it after we read it. Will actually read this because I think he heard about it from you all, probably on your podcast, but he could not stop talking about it. And the things that he was talking about, like armies for hire, after reading it were just not the kind of things that I thought would even be within the scope of the book. Because I don't know the new rules of war. It just never occurred to me that he'd be reading about some of the things that Sean McVeigh covers. 
I think if you enjoy like television shows like 24, this is a perfect book for you because it tells you in the real world, here are these layers and layers of activity happening. And what really matters to super wealthy people who have the capacity to create essentially private armies, it's just it is transporting from everyday life experience. And it also makes so much sense that it's kind of motivating. You know, you start to think about, I want to elect people who think like this and who Mm -hmm. know this and have access to this kind of language and these kinds of ideas. That sounds really interesting. Also, I noted right off, you said the first book I'd like to recommend. I like it. It's bold. I want lots of people to read this book because I do think we need a massive perspective shift around what we ask people to do when we ask them to defend our country. And, And this really shows that like being stuck in World War II is unfair to our military families. Well, that sounds fascinating. Sarah, what did you choose for your first book? Well, back to my obsession with history, I would like to choose <laughs> These Truths by Jill Lepore. Also, your obsession with like 900 page books, apparently. Yeah, I do. I, I, I usually take on one a year. Like, and I think I probably learned that from your reading challenge. Like, I feel like for a couple years, you had one that was like, read one that's over 500 pages. Did I make that up? No, that's a real thing. Yeah. I, so that's, I do try to do that. And I, you know, one year I'm going to, in a minute, recommend a book by Ibram X. Kendi, but it's a shorter one. I read his longer one year, one year stamp from the beginning, which mm-hmm. is a pretty comprehensive history book as well. But These Truths by Jill Lepore, you know, it kind of rem- reminds me of uh, the people's history of the United States. It's just this amazing walk through American history that it's not like it flips the script. It really just, you know, rotates you a couple degrees and then all of a sudden you feel like you're in a totally different landscape. It's not extreme or revolutionary or anything. She's just sharing um, stories and perspectives, events and facts, obviously, that add a layer of complexity to, I think, historical narratives that just they get so simplified and they get so Disneyfied, you know, like we've got a good guy and we've got a bad guy. And it, that's what it was. And she just rolls in there. I think she, Jalapur, is brilliant, is a great writer, has a fascinating way in which she really pushes us to think about history in new and interesting ways. I felt like I highlighted half the book. There was definitely a time on our show where I was mentioning this book every episode, if not every other episode. <laughs> Just because it was a long while, it was a long time. Because <laughs> that's what happens when I read these long ones in particular. They just get in my head. I talk about them all the time. But I just thought she's brilliant, and I think she just does such a good job of doing what Howard Zinn and Ibram X. Kendi do as well, which is say, "You think you know the story, but you don't know the story. Like you just, it's not that simple, and it never was. There are bigger forces at play, and I think history is so powerful." Because we, you know, we can look back with 2020 vision and see these forces at play. And when you can see them at play in history, I do think you build the muscle and get better at seeing them at play right now in the times we're currently living. Yeah. I have the audiobook of these truths I would just like to mention because I don't want to sit and read a history book, but I do find the way that Jill Labor describes these events to be really fascinating. And that is a wonderful way. If if you look at this book and are intimidated by it, it's a wonderful way to get into it, to just pop the headphones and she narrates it. You can hear her passion for the subject matter come through and it's really nice. So if you want to get the absolute most listening per penny out of your audiobook purchase. This is the way to go. It's like 30 hours. It's so true. <laughs> so true. Okay. So I brought the fiction today. Well, not all the fiction, but I brought the fiction. However, talking about the importance of history and understanding it and understanding what it means for today. Y'all, just right off the bat, I have to tell you, I cheated. I got two books, but let me tell you why. The first is Team of Rivals, The Political Genius of Abraham Lincoln by Doris Kearns Goodwin. I love her. I aspire to be a Doris Kearns Goodwin mm-hmm. completist. I am not there yet, but I will get there. I have talked about this book a lot on the show. I'm imagining, Sarah, for the same reasons that when you're reading Jill Laporte, you can't stop talking about it. When you're reading a book that subtly changes your understanding or sometimes drastically changes your understanding of something that you thought you knew or that you've known for a long time, it gets in your head. And I feel like Mm -hmm. your brain needs to synthesize what it's learning and what it means for you and your past and everyone's collective future. But I want to talk about this particular book because it's come to be so relevant to me right now. 
and my understanding of the world and the way I'm seeing it. This is a massive book. It's 800, 900 pages. And I got to say, the first 150 pages or so went so slow for me because she is setting out all the characters. Many of them are not people that are extremely important in the long view context. Like there's so many pages about Salmon P. Chase, who was very important of the day, but I was just like, let's get to Lincoln. Come on. (laughs) But once the story, the true story gets going, it really gets going. And I just had no idea how much I did not know about Lincoln and the Civil War. I think what so often happens is we learn that history in high school and college and we're done. And except for the popular books we read or the occasional article, we stay with that understanding that was formed when we were relatively young and our little brains were not fully developed. At least that's where I was. But reading this book gave me such a deeper and richer appreciation of the near miraculous Lincoln administration so and the true. way it came together, which is so improbable, and just the unspeakable tragedy of his assassination. And until I read this book, I did not fully understand not just the reason it was a tragedy for our nation at the time, and of course, for the man himself, but I didn't grasp what we as a country had lost, which feels especially relevant right now today, because 150 plus years later, we are still dealing with the aftermath of the Civil War and how terribly Reconstruction was handled when Lincoln Mm -hmm. was assassinated. And we don't know that it would be just be like, oh, mission accomplished, problem solved, you know, let's all go skipping off into our United States future. But it could not have been worse um, had he continued in office. The reason I chose that Goodwin book is because another one I recently read, but I mean, to let me define words. Recently, I read this popular narrative nonfiction work I've been meaning to read for forever by Candace Millard. And this one's about the Garfield administration. It's called Destiny of the Republic, A Tale of Madness, Medicine, and the Murder of a President. And um, my dad is, or was a massive history buff. And when I mentioned to him that I was reading this book, he was like, oh, 1881, you know, our second shot at getting civil rights if not right, it was such a goal of mm-hmm. Garfield's administration to improve civil rights. And in his uh, inaugural address, he spoke eloquently about how he wanted liberty throughout the land to all the inhabitants thereof. It was incredibly important to him, a huge goal of his administration. When he was assassinated, it was a huge blow to civil rights. He was strongly against the Jim Crow laws. His successor, Arthur, was a big proponent of them. Now, at this moment in time, thinking about those administrations that bracketed Reconstruction and how it could have been so different is especially poignant right now. Yeah, I think that way about the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. I think it's a real sliding door moment in our country's history. And I think, you know, when I read history books, I think we talked about Team of Rivals last time I was on. I adore that book. I had the honor of watching her come with President Obama in the United States Capitol and celebrate the anniversary of Lincoln's presidency. I think it was his presidency or his birth. I don't know. It was a big Lincoln anniversary. Um, And it was hilarious to watch these senators crowd around her like groupies. Like she is (laughs) totally adored. Oh, that image brings me joy. Yeah, it was awesome. I mean, I I definitely agree with the assassination. I literally read it in the car and was like weeping. And my husband was like, what is wrong with you? You knew the ending of this book. And I was like, you don't understand. No, I never expected to feel that way. Different. Yeah. Uh, You know, the reason I think about Lincoln a lot, partly because people like to bring his name up, but I think the central thesis of that book that his strongest political trait was his empathy is so powerful, was powerful then is, you know, honestly, I think particularly in the time he in which he lived, mm-hmm. even more incredible that that was his gift. But it was important then. It's important now. And I think we can see what happens when there's a lack of empathy in our political discourse or political leadership. But I think those sliding door moments where we can think it's this paradox that they make me feel when I read about them we still aim that way. And even though we we get set back, we still aim that way. The pull towards justice is so strong and also paradoxically so fragile. You know, these, these sliding doors when a leader is assassinated or a deal is struck or, you know, not to keep the Hamilton references flowing, but like it, the, in the room where it happened and everything, even in Hamilton's life, you can see so many moments like that. It makes me feel so profoundly that like, I believe that we are on a march that is not inevitable, but powerful and a powerful force in our lives. And also that the path to get us there is winding and so fragile. So I met Doris Kearns Goodwin in a green room. 
uh, and also was struggling not to be annoying fangirl <laughs> because I think she's amazing. And I want you to know that she is exactly what you might imagine her to be privately, like so lovely, so warm. But that same day, I met Jared Cohen, who wrote the book Accidental President. So as you're talking about assassination and these sliding door moments, that book is a really nice follow up to this conversation because he writes about the eight people who became the president without being elected to that office and the circumstances of their governing and just how how precarious and strong at the same time all of our structures are when moments like that arise. I didn't know about that book. That sounds fascinating. It's really good. It does. It also has that nonfiction mystery feel, which is a phrase I'm going to be using. I know. I know, Sarah. That's my new favorite. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Beth, tell us what to read next. What's your second book? Yes. So the second book I thought I might talk about today is Primary Colors, which is very near and dear to my heart. It's a book that I have loved since I was in high school. I read my paperback copy so many times that it is falling apart. In high school, I loved to read in the bathtub. And so this book has been through it. Uh, But I have always loved this book. It's a fictionalized account of the campaign of Bill Clinton in just the primary process. I think what makes me continue to come back to this book is the way the characters are so almost comically flawed, all in their own ways. And I feel like it dissects, for me, what parts of a person's character really matter when they're ascending to leadership and what parts deserve all kinds of grace and humanity and space. And it does that in a way that's funny and at times poignant and at times profane and hilarious and and, and sharp. Um, and I just like all of the emotions that it evokes in me because I feel like I am with a, a set of people who really want to do something good for their country and also for themselves and everybody's motivations are all mixed up. It feels like the most realistic portrayal I can imagine of what being on the inside of a campaign must feel like. You know, it's so funny. I consider myself a Clintonite from my time working in Hillary Clinton's 2007 presidential campaign and just a long-term interest in both the Clintons. And I tried to read it when Beth was like, we put it in our extra credit book club subscription. And I was like, I've picked it up so many times. I can't get through it. I don't know if it's because it's hard for me to detach and just see it as a fictionalized account. Although I did just read... Curtis Dittenfield's Rodham. And I thought particularly the first half of that book where she's writing about a fictionalized account of how Bill and Hillary Clinton fell in love was incredibly insightful and did for me exactly what Beth just described, like helped me look at what could have happened or character. And I thought that part was brilliant. Didn't love the second half. I really liked the first half. I don't know. I just keep picking up primary colors and I just can't get into it. And I feel like I should read it. Like I feel like I'm missing some sort of important checked box for being a person that speaks about the Clintons, but I don't know. Maybe your time for this book has just not arrived. Maybe that's one of it. But I haven't read it yet. I've been meaning to read it for ages. Beth, what would you say? Any bibliotherapy advice for Sarah? You know, Sarah and I struggle more about the Clintons than any other topic. So it just might not be for her. I mean, I think that she has a real defined view of them based on personal experience that might mean this book doesn't ever become one that she cherishes. I do think there is a complexity in the portrayal of the Hillary Clinton stand-in in this book that is powerful and captivating. You know, Sarah, if you ever want to really go there, just rest assured that she is not painted to be a monster. No, I've gotten in far enough to know that. I love the conversations, the dialogue in this marriage, too, where you have all these discussions where she is really focused on policy. He's really focused on inspiring people. And there's a tension in that discussion that I feel plays out in lots of our conversations, Sarah, and lots of just national discussions about how we approach issues. So I think it's brilliant. But if it's time doesn't come for you, you know, I understand. There are plenty of other political books to read or not political books to read. Mm -hmm. All right, Sarah, tell us about a book. So my next book is um, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. 
So this book followed um, his other book, which I've read, Stamp from the Beginning, which is a comprehensive history of racism. And I mean comprehensive. He starts with Columbus and he goes to Obama. It's a very comprehensive history. And I think, you know, what rocked me so hard about his, I guess, scholarship, his approach overall, is this this idea that you are either an assimilationist, segregationist, or an anti-racist. You know, he just uses history to formulate it and to walk through sort of this through line and this thread that you see um, in so much racial policy. And so when he came out with how to be an anti-racist, I was all in because he he definitely like thoroughly convinced me of this framework and stand from the beginning. So I was excited to read how to be an anti-racist where he and it's a very it's a much more personal book. It definitely mm-hmm. talks about his personal experiences and his personal life. I just find him so brilliant. And I I think in particular, he's very good at sort of the cultural undercurrents. And I'm, I'm using cultural with quotation marks around it because he shows in such a brilliant way that like when we talk about quote unquote culture or when we formulate policy in a certain way, that we really are either taking this sort of assimilationist, which I think is insidious, much more insidious and very harmful and a real powerful force in our policy and our politics. And so like when he I think how to be, you know, stamp from the beginning is a is a big undertaking. Also, I don't think anybody's going to listen to me if I recommend two 500 page (laughs) history books (laughs) in one episode. How to be an anti-racist is a much more digestible. And he he goes through that framework like that. You're either a assimilationist, a segregationist or an anti-racist and how that works in our conversations, how that works in our policy, how that works um, in our society. And I just think it's so illuminating and brilliant. And I just, you know, I read everything he writes. So I think he's just one of the leading thinkers, leaders out there on this topic. I haven't read this yet. That sounds really good. I've read the history, the long history, but I haven't read this shorter book. And I'm, I really love the fact that this has more of his personal mm-hmm. story in it. That's really intriguing to me. Oh, yeah. I mean, like he went through cancer. He talks about um, when he was a teenager and how he did this speech that was very um, assimilationist. And he talks about like how he got to that mindset, how he saw his way out, like who led him out. Like it's just it's really, really, really good. Yeah, I love reading about people's journeys or hearing Mm -hmm. about them. And on that note, I've got a novel to bring. And this is a YA novel. And the reason I love it, well, first of all, it's The Voting Booth by Brandy Colbert. And the reason I love a good story, true, or I mean, true, but fictional, um, how about nonfiction or fictional, is the way that it can take important issues and make them feel real and tangible and really give them life in our minds um, and in our worldviews. So this book just came out this summer, um, but it's set on a real day that is still to come, Election Day, Tuesday, November 3rd. And I love how in her book that came out this year, Election Day happens on Tuesday, November 3rd, 2020. Like it is anchored in time. And this is a day that's incredibly important to the two teen narrators of this YA novel. Um, Colbert said that this was the first time she'd written two narrators and she had to do it for this story and it was a big challenge, but she thinks it works. And I think it works too. So what this book really does is it takes these like big picture issues of um, American history and black history and civil rights history and voter suppression and drops these two teenage kids in the midst of them and shows you in the course of a single day them um, like swimming through the waters of all these things. And dis- despite this, because I have to think you write a book called The Voting Booth, you want to address election related issues. It's not it's not like it accidentally happens to incorporate these themes, but it doesn't read like an issues book that's like thinly cloaked in a story. Not at all. Sarah, you tell me what you think about our female protagonist. Okay. She's 18 years old, black family. Her name is Marva. She has been waiting for this day her entire life because she's been interested in politics since she was tiny. When her second grade teacher said, what do you want to be when you grow up? She's like, okay, here are my choices. Secretary of state, environmental attorney, or Supreme Court justice. (laughs) So now she's a senior and she is not an official volunteer, but this is the first election she can vote in. She can barely stand how excited she is to be part of the process. So she's at the polls first thing in the morning. She's got her clipboard and the other teen narrator named Duke. He's like, this girl looks like she belongs and she is running things and she's making things happen. And she looks like a teacher, except she looks like she's my age. So she's at the polls. 
with her clipboard very early in the morning where she meets this other black 18 year old teen named Duke. And he's also from a family who cares deeply about politics always has. His brother was a huge activist who was shot in a drive-by shooting. Not that long before, I think a couple of years, which he says he hates because people hear drive-by and they make all these assumptions mm. and he's very tender about that because he doesn't feel like it does justice to his brother, um, what people assume based on very little information. But he shows up to vote and finds out he's not on the rolls. You know, Marva with her clipboard, who is just so excited to be part of the process. I mean, that sounds like Sarah, right? It does. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) I know my place in this duo. Duke cannot go back home to his family without an I voted sticker. Like, this needs to happen. And Marva is determined to help in any way she can. So these two kids embark on a almost madcap adventure through the city, except the stakes are way too high to for that to be quite accurate. But I mean, it does involve funny issues like her Instagram famous cat goes missing and they have to go find it somehow. But also really <laughs> serious issues like what happens when these two black teenagers get pulled over for a traffic stop and they mm. swap stories about their pasts and they hold their breasts as the cop interrogates them. And so there's definitely a mix of the heavy and the light. But I really enjoyed this book as an adult. I've recommended it a ton since I read it early this summer. But I do like how it takes these issues that are so abstract for so many teens and so many adults both. And it puts them into a story that really resonates. Well, and here's the thing. When you said like a political book and I thought, well, we need fiction. And then there was a part of me that thought in many ways, Especially if you're talking about literary fiction, every book is political because the political is personal. And if you're writing a book about domestic violence, that's a political book, in my opinion. And if you're writing a book about an immigration journey, that's a political book. And I think even books that don't set out to have an explicitly political message, which I don't think a lot of fiction books do, what they're doing is sharing a perspective. You know, I think one of the most powerful things that can happen in a political space is consciousness raising this idea that like, I'm not alone. Somebody else experiences this and they're tackling struggles that are shared with me. And that means that that's not about me or my choices. That's about something that's going on in our culture, our society, our country with the laws, with our systems, you know, and that can happen with nonfiction. Like I think can't even does a really good job of that, but I think it can absolutely happen with fiction, and I think so many books that nobody would think of as political to me are deeply political because they're doing that. They're raising our consciousness. They're helping us understand things we talk about when we talk, quote unquote, politics, be it, you know, taxes or public education or reproductive rights or whatever the case may be. Like those are really personal issues and they affect our lives in really personal ways. You know, fiction like that, that can really draw you into a story and help you see maybe an issue that felt like it was just on paper is someone else's life is a really, really powerful political act. I'm glad you said that because, I mean, one of the reasons we're sharing a variety of books today is because I think when we hear political books, we think instructional or historical, Mm -hmm. and it goes so much deeper. And you know, so many books that we don't think of as being political completely have those components. Like an hour ago, I had an Agatha Christie book sitting on my desk. It's a new one coming out for the fall. And Will was like, this is a very interesting stack of books you have here. What is it? And there was like a YA novel called something like Love and Olives. It's a love and gelato follow-up. And then there's one like kind of dystopian sci-fi book that was on the stack. He's like, is this, is this for Beth and Sarah? And I was like, no, 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 that's just, that's just book mail. (laughs) I was just reporting to my team on what book mail came in just now when the UPS carrier was here. And he's like, oh, cause you know, Agatha Christie was on top and I thought about, and then there were none. And that's how, that's about a judge enacting his own brand of unauthorized justice. And I thought, oh my gosh, you're right. I never think of Agatha Christie as being a political novelist, but I mean, that's totally what happens in the book. Uh, that might be a massive spoiler for And Then There Were None. So just carry on and forget about it before you pick it up if you haven't read it yet. <laughs> okay. Beth, what did you choose for your third book? Well, that's all a really beautiful segue to my third book, which doesn't seem like a political book at all. I chose The Body, A Guide for Occupants by Bill Bryson. Ooh, I'm intrigued. Tell me more. Also, I've had this downloaded, like actually downloaded, ready to hit play in the woods as opposed to connected to Wi-Fi for, I don't know, five months and haven't listened yet. So I'm leaning in and listening close. I didn't mention about my reading life that I read lots of poetry. This book feels more poetic at times than like a nonfiction read that is helping you understand how your eyes work, for example. It very methodically goes through every system in the body. 
And I never thought I would be interested in a book like this, but it is so grounding to read about just this human form that we all take and how the systems of the body really form a community, how everything is related, but also has its discrete work to do. There are just metaphors upon metaphors in terms of how we we do live together in community, how we do set up structures to help us live together in community, how everyone does have their own work to do, even in those structures and with all that connection. It's just a perfect way to understand how at every layer we're built to be in tension with individual versus communal. And I love it. And I also just find that it reintroduces for me an element of spirituality is maybe the wrong word, but just remembering that I'm part of something much bigger and that aspects of that are by design and aspects of it are completely random. Like I love all the places where he points out we don't know why we make tears when we're sad. We know why we make tears for other reasons, but we, we haven't come to understand from an evolutionary perspective why we cry sad tears. And those little bits, I don't know, it just brings a little bit of magic back to being a person for me. And I think if you have a little magic around being a person, you're able to come into political conversation really differently. So it puts a little bit of the mystery back in. Yes, yes. And wonder, you know, and awe. Those are great words. Yeah, I don't get a lot of that. <laughs> you know, it's you don't come away from the new rules of war with like mystery and wonder and awe. And so uh, the balance is important to me. But I love that you found it in this book. And I would imagine that when you picked it up, that's not what you were expecting to feel. Not at all. I could not have imagined that I would laugh, cry, just feel so many different things reading about veins, but he does it. <laughs> this is what I'm saying to you. It's just a surprise upon surprise. Well, now I'm excited that I already have that book in my life and I want it in my brain as soon as possible. <laughs> Sarah, what did you choose? My last book is The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion oh, by Jonathan Haidt. I've been meaning to read this for forever. We've talked about it on the oh. podcast. It was a, it was Shaney's guest love. It's so good. It does exactly what I was talking about and the type of nonfiction I read, which is just it gives me this foundation, not even a foundation. I feel like he gave me like a code to like a translation, you know, like I felt like I read this book and I could see the patterns and what was going on around me, whereas before it just felt like chaos. So he uses social psychology to really set forth this moral foundation, right? There are six values, universal values, but depending on whether you are conservative or progressive, one will motivate you more than the other. There are things like care, respect for authority, protection of the group, fairness, purity. And he kind of walks through how these play out in different cultures and in different sides of the political spectrum. And, you know, he does a really good job of sweeping in some of that personal journey and how he realized through some life experiences that just because a group was motivated by a different principle than he was, that we truly need all kinds. When I read this book, this is another one that I just talked about and talked about and talked about. And I still think about and I still talk about because in a moment like this where, where there's a lot of polarization and the stakes are very high, I think we can get in this place where we feel like the other side is the enemy and, you know, there's just no path forward. But there has to be a path forward. At least I don't, you know, I don't want to break up the union. I saw how that played out in Team of Rivals. I'm not anxious to repeat it. And so attempting to understand what's motivating someone instead of just removing all benefit of the doubt, all grace, and assuming that you understand what motivates them and that it is, quote, evil or hate or whatever the case may be, I think is just really, really, really helpful. You know, the way that he gives us those tools and helps see that just because that doesn't motivate you doesn't mean that it's one, a motivation we could strip from the world if we wanted to, which we can't, or one that we shouldn't seek to try to understand in a more complex way. Beth, have you read this? 
I have read parts of it. I have never finished it, which you're making me feel like I need to do that. This would probably be a good time to reground myself in these ideas. I was just thinking that the thing that appeals to me about that book is the same thing that I knew in hindsight I appreciated in Can't Even that we talked about earlier is, you know, the world to be a certain way. You didn't know there could even be an answer to the question, why? Why is that? It just sounds like it gives you a framework to see the things you didn't think were seeable. Well, what I found with Sarah and this book, because she brings it up a lot, too, is just it puts really crisp language around some of mm-hmm. those things. And so it's a nice shortcut. OK, this is what's happening. I have a label for that so I don't have to invest all this emotion in it because I can call it what I know it to be. And there's complexity behind that, but I have a shorthand way to refer to it. Yeah. And I feel like sometimes it's so hard to have conversations about things, even in your own head, if you don't have the vocabulary to do so. I think that's why Brene Brown is so enormously popular. I think that is her particular gift. She names things. Now, sometimes Mm -hmm. she keeps naming things and I wish she would stop. But (laughs) like, I think that what she did, especially with her first three books, was put language and framework around things we were all experiencing in a way that was enormously helpful, that sort of quieted the chaos and gave us all language. Like, listen, even though I was the number one Oprah fan of all time and watched it every single day, and I felt like if there was ever a space that would happen, it would be the Oprah show. It's not like, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, we were all talking about vulnerability. We weren't. You know, (laughs) we were not talking about that. We were not even really talking about shame, I don't think. Um, And just, you know, using words like that and understanding like, okay, I'm motivated by care. This person is motivated by protecting the group. If we're going to live in community together, um, the truth is there's probably room for both of those things. We need each other to move forward. It is in my best interest and the interest of the thing that is motivating me to understand what motivates them. I was about to ask you to make an argument for Brene Brown as a political writer, but it, no argument has to be made. Like I'm thinking of reading she is, Braving absolutely. the Wilderness and how she talks about having really intense but gracious conversations about hot button political issues with people in her life. Well, and I think she's so good. Like I, I was listening to her. I think it was on Pod Save the People. She was talking about, look, I go around and when I say we need to be vulnerable and be authentic, and that means giving grace to the children of Donald Trump as much as to the children of Bill Clinton or Barack Obama. Um, and she was like, that's where I get the most people standing up and walking out. It's in like more progressive spaces where she's pushing them that people are like, uh-uh, no way. Um, I'm on the side of right and I'm not going to listen to this. And I always think about that. I think about like her, the people's reactions to her um, when she does take a more explicitly political stance because her, I would, you know, I think so much of her audience um, assumes certain things about themselves. And when they are challenged in that way, they don't like it. All right. I want to end with another novel. This is one I've recommended on the show before, but not for a good long while and certainly not in this context. And that is a book that I imagine most people would not think of as political, which is honestly a big reason why I chose it. And that is Kevin Wilson's Nothing to See Here. Have either of you read this? I have. No. Okay. I read it quickly. Political book? I mean, is that how you think of it? Ah, yeah. No, I think that that is definitely when you when you said that, I was like, no, yeah, I get it. I mean, not just because there is some explicitly political characters, but I think everything that happens between Lillian and Madison, the roommates, both when they're roommates and afterwards is is also exceptionally political, exceptionally political. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and oh, and feels- broke my heart right at the beginning. I could just see I know where this is going and I do not like do not like. The politics of class, for sure, for sure. I don't know what you daydream about, but I want to be able to like drop in on bookstores. I don't want the responsibility of running one every day, let's be honest, but I just want to be able to curate my own like bookstore displays every once in a while. I want a big display of books that you wouldn't have thought of as political, but totally are, and this would be one of them. Okay, so this novel, which is pretty, it's pretty short. I listened to this on audio. The narration was fantastic. I think it was by Marin Ireland. It was like six-ish hours, was not long. The book's not much more than 200 pages. But like Sarah was saying, the beginning of the story, like it sucked me right in, but it also broke my heart for Mm -hmm. poor Lillian. It starts at an elite boarding school in the American South. And there's two girls. Madison is a department store heiress and Lillian's a scholarship kid. And they get paired together, develop a fast friendship based on what they describe as their mutual weirdness. Um, But that ends early and badly. But 
Years later, Madison finds herself in a uniquely precarious situation, and Lillian is the only person she trusts to help her with it. So Lillian goes to the family. Um, it's like a compound. It's in Franklin, Tennessee. And she visits her friend who has, by all accounts, gotten the life she always wanted. She's married to a powerful man with political ambitions who may be the next secretary of state like any minute now and who aspires to run for president one day. Except they just have this one tiny problem. And that is that her husband's two kids, Madison's two stepkids, sometimes get angry. And when they do, they catch on fire. Mm -hmm. So like, as I was reading this, I was picturing Jack-Jack from The Incredibles. It doesn't hurt them, <laughs> but it does like set the things around them on fire. And also like, it's just not normal. And so the reason, or one of the reasons this is extraordinarily important, maybe the only reason it's important to these kids' father is that he wants to run for office. He can't have weird kids, definitely not kids that catch on fire. This is not good. The news people, the news outlets cannot hear about it. Like nobody can know, like somebody's got to figure this out. Cause if they don't like, he's never going to be president. Sarah, you want to sing a Hamilton song about that? <laughs> well, here's the thing. No, because I still am traumatized from when Lin-Manuel Miranda sang that in Saturday Night Live after the Access Hollywood tape. I think about that like once a week, but here's what I was just thinking about that book. I did not make this connection when I read the book, but as you were talking about it, and probably because I am training to be a child advocate in my personal life, mm -hmm. it reminds me of the power. What happens when people without power gain access to a physical condition that asserts their power in a space in a way they can no longer be marginalized, right? You know the power, Naomi Alderman, where the women gain Yeah, but I haven't read it. It's so good. You haven't oh, read really? it? It's and one of the reasons I haven't read it is because I've been told, hey, the premise is amazing. Yeah, it is. It is. The premise is it. that that's it. When, no, I disagree. I totally disagree. The premise is amazing that women gain the power to shoot electricity out of the palms of their hands. But I think the examination of power and gender is fascinating and absolutely political. But the reason I say it makes me think of nothing to see here is because so often you know, we talk about children and we love our own children and we fret about children in the system. But I don't think we have solved the problem, cracked the nut about how to make sure any system, public education, child welfare works for children. What a way to upend that, right? You know, what would have happened to these kids in this scenario had this not been the condition, right? Like this, the fire, it, it puts them like a powerful position in their own lives in a way, right? Because they have now a power to say, I'm angry and you will not ignore me. Or I'm traumatized and you will not ignore me. And you must prioritize me in a way that you couldn't if, for example, I was not spontaneously bursting into flames. I just think that's like what a cool narrative device to upend the power differential with children generally, children in a divorce, children in a political family, I just think that that's like an interesting thought experiment in the same way the power was. And it's not essential that this be set in the political landscape, but what I really liked about it is the way the political ambitions become a plot device that ups the stakes. Like yeah. optics are everything. And I also love the way Kevin Wilson plays with the idea of appearances and reality and how we present ourselves to the world and how we are seen. He riffs on that at the ending, which I think is awesome. It's fun. It's not like a, let me show you how the political world works or a meditation on the corruptive influences of unchecked power, but just seeing how the politics affect the people's lives in this book. It was a whole lot of fun for me as a reader. Okay. So what I'd love to hear is what you're reading now and what you're reading next. Beth, how about you? I'm reading a bunch of things right now, but the one that I will share is Rigged by David Scheimer. It's about what we're talking about when we say election interference. And it is really fun to read. It talks all about how our CIA operated during the Cold War throughout the globe, how America is actually really super good at interfering in other countries' elections and about how our elections are being interfered with today and kind of where election interference is going. So it's excellent. That sounds fascinating. I didn't know about that one. I think it's relatively new. It's another, I heard this guy interviewed as an expert on a podcast and thought, I need to know more from him because he was just putting language around election interference and precision around that concept that I wasn't hearing anywhere else. That's fascinating. Sarah, how about you? So I just last night finished A Burning 
by Mega Majmundar. Uh huh. Yeah. Which I really enjoyed. I thought it was again an experience totally different from mine in a country that I don't know a lot about. So I really, really liked it. I'm usually reading a couple books at once. So I'm also reading Andrew Solomon's Far From the Tree. Mm -hmm. And I'm reading another history book called On Slavery's Border, Missouri's Small Slaveholding Households, 1815 to 1865. I know the title really rocks. But the reason I'm reading this is because for a very long time after examining my own family's history with slave owning, I sort of learned the historical reality of my own family and a lot of families at the time is that they were small slaveholders, meaning like slave owners of 10 or less people. And I think that, you know, so much of the history and the narrative fiction, nonfiction around the Civil War and slave owning in the United States is that we talk about plantations where massive amounts of people were being held in bondage. The reality is there were many, 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 many families who were small slaveholders, especially in my part of the country. So in Western Kentucky, Missouri, Western Tennessee. And I could not and had been asking and looking for a long time, find histories or narratives about that particular experience, um, which I would really, really like to understand more in depth. And so I, I, I hate I feel really bad right now because I don't remember who finally said, oh, why don't you try this one? But I've started reading it and it is really really interesting and fascinating to understand because I think mm-hmm. it's it's neglected but important really 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 important and so that's the the other book I'm reading right now that sounds fascinating my reading is very different <laughs> <laughs> Next up, I want to read The Body. I'm in the middle of a food memoir called Mastering the Art of French Eating by Anne Ma, which makes me want to go to Paris. Mm. Of, cor- of course. I mean, who didn't see that coming? I love it. And I'm about to start a debut novel by Asha Lemmy. It's called 50 Words for Rain. Publishers Week, he called it epic and twisty, which sounds good to me. And it's about the life of a half black girl born illegitimately into a Japanese family um, of the nobility in 1940. So it's during the World War II years. I loved pachinko so much. So that makes my antennas go up because it feels pachinko adjacent, which I'm always trying to find because I loved that novel so much. I've learned from you being able to articulate like what I actually enjoy. Like I really like, which is funny because I'm an only child. I love books about siblings. I love multi-generational family stories. So I don't know. That sounds really good. That sounds like I might like it. I'll let you know how it goes. Oh, and of course, I want to read The Body now. It's already waiting for me on my app. Sarah and Beth, this has been so fun, although I can say, well, I was going to say it hasn't done my to-be-read list any favors, but that presumes that I don't want to add titles to it, and you know I totally do. It's just a so many books, so many times situation. Thank you so much for talking books with me today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. It was lots of fun. Hey, readers, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Sarah and Beth today, and I'd love to hear your favorite books about today's topic. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 254, and it's where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. I highly recommend checking out their podcasts, Pantsuit Politics and The Nuanced Life. These are priority listens for me. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. I also love following them on social media. We'll share all those links in our show notes. Readers, subscribe now to What Should I Read Next so you don't miss next week's episode in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. We will see you next week. If you're on Twitter, find me there at Ann Bogle. That's Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Follow me there on Instagram and also at our all books, all the time account, What Should I Read Next? Our newsletter subscribers are the first to know all our news and happenings. If you're not on the list, just go to whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter to sign up for our free weekly delivery. Speaking of gifts, holiday season is right around the corner. And if you enjoy this podcast and want to tangibly support it, buying that book would be a great way to support this show and my work. Thank you in advance. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? 
On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? You get us, Queen's Podcast. And here at Queen's, we are spilling the tea on all kinds of women from history. From New Orleans voodoo queen, Marie Laveau, to Marie Antoinette, and everything in between. Each queen is paired with a cocktail recipe that will totally get you in the mood to hear the fun, dramatic, and juicy stories of fascinating women from history. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers! Cheers!